The region's school districts welcomed back thousands of students this week with COVID-19 safety measures, devastating budget gaps, and continued uncertainty for the future. Yet, whether virtual or in person, those dear old golden rule days are back. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top stories. We've put a map together of the gun violence that Albany has experienced this year. We'll get a special sneak peek at the Times Union 2020 best of results. We really outdid ourselves this year. And we'll take a look in depth at the case of a local COVID-19 related nursing home death. The fact that you had somebody who was working at another home with an already established outbreak is is a big concern, I think. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. Once again, we are here with our intrepid editor, Casey Seiler. We're going to take a look at the top headlines this week. Uh, Let's start right in. Albany clocked in its 14th homicide. What's going on? Tell us the latest. Yeah, so we're talking uh, on Thursday, and it just happened in the wee hours. A 39-year-old man shot multiple times and and died uh, on First Street uh, between uh, Quail and Ontario, which unfortunately has been in an area that has seen more than its fair share of gun violence this year. It was only about a month ago that an 18-year-old was shot dead, basically on the same block, right in the um, the same area. You know, we've we've put a map together of the gun violence that Albany has experienced this year. You can uh, look to the pandemic, according to local officials, for at least one of the biggest causes of this bump in violence. They say that so many groups that interact with young people and that work to stop violence, to squash beefs, as it were, among all age groups, haven't been able to be out on the street, whether they are official voices from the police force or, or nonprofit organizations, you know, so-called interrupters, they have themselves been interrupted in in doing a lot of their good work because of the pandemic. Uh, And others point to potential other causes, changes to uh, bail laws that are keeping young offenders on the streets perhaps more than they would have been before. There is pushback to that idea, but um, certainly people in, in law enforcement offer that up as, as one reason, but it's um, obviously tragic, especially tragic for the people who, who live in these neighborhoods and do have to try and live their lives cheek by jowl with far too much violence. And uh, for more information on our coverage of the most recent homicide and the recent spate of shootings in Albany, you can visit our interactive coverage at timesunion.com. 
Let's talk about how uh, there was a recent investigation, an internal FBI investigation, uh, of a former FBI leader in Albany alleging that he sexually harassed a number of employees. What's the latest with that? Yeah, a really uh, remarkable report. This is from uh, Brendan Lyons, who's our uh, investigative chief. In May, the FBI issued a report on James Hendricks, who was the special agent in charge, the SAC, for the Albany FBI office that concluded that he allegedly harassed, sexually harassed eight employees and established a hostile work environment for one employee who he apparently had an intimate relationship with. Mr. Hendricks is no longer with the FBI, but the problem here, in addition to the allegations against him, is that the FBI has a policy of not identifying people who it concludes internally sexually harassed other employees, which is, of course, a big problem if that former FBI employee goes on to work someplace else. It is, in fact, very similar to policies that, for example, various religious organizations uh, had in place for years and years when someone who was abusive or engaged in alleged misconduct would essentially be shuffled off to, for example, a different diocese or a school or another line of work, where, of course, because no one at that second institution knew anything about that person's uh, record of alleged misconduct, they were essentially uh, a blank slate, and far too often the misconduct um, continued again. Thanks to Brendan Lyons' good reporting, that will not happen in this case. In entertainment news, uh, Albany has recently been the site of a popular television show filming. Amazon's Modern Love came to film in Albany. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is the uh, Amazon streaming service uh, anthology series, I believe inspired by the New York Times Modern Love feature, which is good stuff. And they've been filming in Schenectady, where they've taken over the large uh, armory complex that is, you know, usually used by rec league soccer teams, but but now has been turned into, you know, a vaulted uh, studio space, essentially. They were filming in Washington Park earlier this week. And isn't it nice to have uh, something involving love? to talk about it amid all this doom and gloom. Also Amazon related this week, the huge fulfillment center, which is I think still probably the largest, certainly the largest new commercial development in this area in quite a while. I'm not sure that it beats out GE's sprawling complex, but it just opened up across the river in Rensselaer County. They say that it is going to employ as many as a thousand people. So that's some that's some good economic news for the region amid a lot of bad. Indeed, indeed. That is a positive note. Along those lines of a positive note, uh, we have something very positive and very special coming up at the Times Union this week. Well, one thing that, that we all look forward to is our annual Best of the Capital Region section where we, you know, essentially hand uh, the the ballot over to our readers to pick the best in terms of dining, in terms of retail, in terms of local media, and you name it, a hundred categories. And uh, we will be announcing the, uh, the top three picks in all of those in a special glossy section that uh, will be in the paper on 
Thursday the 17th. And uh, we highly recommend everybody check it out, go through it, be happy, be sad if you see that your faves didn't win out. Now, this year, of course, the voting was done before the world ended. You know, the voting took place back in January and February. The section usually comes out in May. Of course, we decided to postpone it because so much of the great activity and places that are celebrated in this section were simply shut down during the pandemic. So uh, you can look at it as a sign that amid the ongoing tragedy and tumult, that things are returning to something a little bit closer to normal, but it's good to be able to celebrate the best of the capital region once again. To whet your appetite a little bit, we have a portion of something that we filmed earlier this week that's going to give you a little bit of a preview, maybe reveal a few of the winners. Yeah, that's right. And to kind of uh, to set the stage, as it were, I sat down earlier this week for a conversation with uh, Gary Hahn and Sarah Tracy, the two editors from our Outstanding Features Department, who really play kind of the largest role in pulling this very complex package together. Casey, thank you so much for joining me, and we will, without further ado, get to it. How did uh, this year's Best Of project get sidetracked, and what was kind of the timeline there, Gary? You know, Best Of magazine usually comes out in, in the spring, some you know, early to late May. And so we had everything lined up, all the boats were in, um, photos were taken, we were all set to start working on the actual magazine and getting the word out there, and uh, then came the end of March. All of a sudden, as we all know, the, the world ground to a halt, and uh, we were faced with the uh, prospect of putting out a magazine with, uh, with everything closed. So, you know, we put it on the back burner. Um, as things began to loosen up over the summer and into the fall, we said, okay, we don't want to have this year go by without a best of. It's already been a crazy year. So let's uh, put the magazine together for the fall and give the people their votes, albeit uh, six months later. And the thinking in the spring was, you know, usually best of is, is something that businesses really look forward to because, of course, it's kind of a, it is, of course, a celebration of sort of what readers have determined to be the best in the region. And back in March and April, so many of these businesses were shut down, not just restaurants, though they were still doing uh, takeout, but of course, entertainment venues, you know, uh, so many retailers were closed down, that kind of thing. So the thinking back then was, these businesses are very badly going to need a shot in the arm when they reopen. And now, of course, so many of them, though not all of them, are open once again, right? Definitely in retail and in most of, you know, most restaurants and uh, places where you get food. Food stores in some places have never closed down. But now most retail, if not all retail is open. Uh, most restaurants are open. Those that didn't really suffer losses and had a closed temporarily during this time. Um, what's really still taking the hit is in the arts and entertainment. You know, although um, galleries have slowly been reopening and you can go see you know, visual art again, places where you go see live music, places where you go see movies, theater, those places are still shuttered. And there's no way of telling how long we'll have to wait until they reopen again. Sarah, tell us a little bit about how the overall reader response went during the voting this year that was conducted in, the, in kind of the opening months of 2020. Well, in short, it went gangbusters, really. <laughs> we've been trying the last few years. Um, we've been working with our circulation and our marketing team here at the Times Union to make best of bigger, better, the best. And we really outdid ourselves this year. We had 
55,000 people participating this year, which is the most that it's ever been. In total, we had more than 635,000 votes, which Gary, I think if we're looking at that correctly, it's nearly doubled or at least, you know, two thirds more than what it was last year, which is just, I mean, it's amazing. And I think people were probably thinking, you know, it's the end of winter. They're looking forward to everything that's going to be opening up, the prospect of spring and summer and getting out there. So we really pushed best of voting and people came out in droves. And we love that kind of interaction with the community. And that spread across how many categories, Sarah? That was 100 categories. We got our big one zero zero categories this year. Um, completely intentional. It was not a fluke. We wanted to make this the biggest best of ever. What were some of the biggest vote drawing categories, whether this year or sort of across the years that you've been working on best of? One that comes to mind right away is the best farmers market. That's one that we see a lot of, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but there is one particular popular farmers market in the capital region that gets the majority of those votes, but that's always in the six to 7,000 vote range when we're looking at that. Same with Best Hospital. I think people really feel passionately about where they get their health care and where their family gets their health care. That's always, always, always a big vote getter. Plus, you know, some of the biggest employers in the capital region are the hospitals in this area. One of them that always gets a lot of votes is the Best New Restaurant. And I know that we'll be talking about that in another video. So I'm not going to spoil anything for that one. <laughs> of course, this is, this is a season where election integrity is very much on everybody's <laughs> mind. Of course, you know, I started at the Times Union as entertainment editor. So Best Of was kind of my responsibility. I did it for eight years. Back then, of course, the online element was not as big as the paper ballot that people would fill out for the reader survey, which back then was, you know, it was the centerpiece of the section, but it most of, of best of for the first six years or so that I was doing it was essentially the reporters kind of contributing, you know, short little mini essays on things that they found delightful. Now, of course, it is, uh, the section is, is made up almost entirely by the, the reader response. But of course, I can remember getting those paper ballots and thinking, boy, the handwriting on these really looks very, very similar for, uh, you know, whatever, whatever category was, was most contentious. This is a, a competition where enthusiasm, um, perhaps over strict uh, ballot integrity, uh, is, uh, is prioritized, would you say? A couple of years ago, we switched how we do our digital voting and digital nominations. I think that that was a lot easier for people to get. You know, we're all attached to our phones. I've got mine right here. <laughs> and I think that that really bumped up the enthusiasm because you could just share immediately, hey, I voted on the best of poll, vote with me. And that's not to say that we didn't do a paper ballot. I remember Gary and I trying to fit 100 categories in the unwind section back in February or January. Uh, and that was a tight squeeze, I remember, <laughs> for those categories. But we really did try to make this as fair as possible. That said, throughout the entire nomination and voting process, we got a lot of feedback from folks who wanted to see different kinds of categories. You know, there was a man that I talked to, he's an electrician, he has an electrician business, and he wanted to see best electrician in there. And I said, maybe next year, we got maybe 30 or 40 new suggestions for categories through that process. 
and folks had notes about the nomination and voting process that was online. So it's all stuff that we'll take into account when we do best of 2021. What are some categories that were just added in recent years, kind of in response to some of those uh, suggestions from readers? We have a couple that we've retired from the best of graveyard that had been uh, categories in prior years, but we had kind of put them on the back burner. Uh, we brought back the best family restaurant category, the best radio station category. We have the best dentist or orthodontist, which is one that you know, when you have a new category, you don't quite know how it's going to go with the voters. That one did. I mean, Gary, what would you say in terms of the voting and the nominations for that? Uh, went through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the other, this year, some of the most closely contested categories? Yeah, I've got a couple of those right in front of me. And really, you know, when we say closely contested, it's not like, you know, they were close with 200, 300 votes. This is by, you know, single votes. So I'm looking at the best sandwich shop, which is part of our goods and services category. The number one, which had a little around 2,200 votes, but two and three were separated by one vote. And number one and number two was only separated by about 50 votes. So that was a pretty, pretty close one. And it's the same across several categories. Um, best garden center and florist. In the years, we've had a little bit of a seesaw between Hewitt's and Fadigan's in one and two. And I'm not going to say who won one, who won two, but there was less than 50 votes. So it was really, really close there. After the break, a COVID-related nursing home death raises questions about how local facilities are handling outbreaks. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. The family of a Troy nursing home resident who died of COVID-19 is calling for New York State to take a deeper look and how the facility handled an outbreak there. Times Union Health reporter Bethany Bump did an investigation into the situation where she discovered that an employee had worked at the site of another local outbreak and may have brought the virus into the facility. I recently spoke with Bethany about her story and how it came together. How did you first come upon this story? I was forwarded an email from uh, one of my editors who had received a letter from this niece of this woman who had died at the facility. And the niece had basically written to us to say, my aunt just died at this facility and there's just something off about the information that they provided us throughout the course of her illness, about the way that they communicated about their outbreak and just about her death itself, which you know had come following you know, multiple days of them saying, oh, she's, she seems like she's doing fine. You know, they were saying things like, oh, she's very comfortable. She's lethargic, right? Well, okay, you're 91, you have pneumonia, you're going to be lethargic. And then, you know, they get a call early one Saturday morning. It's like right after 5 a.m. that their aunt had died. And so it, it had sort of taken them aback because they were getting like these these very sunny reports about how she was doing. 
we're just absolutely shocked. You know, like there had been no indication that it was dire, you know, no idea that it was dire. That's how I learned about it. And I, I started asking questions. When you started asking questions, were you getting answers? Not the answers I was looking for. <laughs> Interestingly, everything is so filtered now through all of these press offices. So the reason that this family had been alerted that maybe there was something strange going on was because they had had a conversation with the ombudsman for the facility. And the ombudsman is basically supposed to be like a resident representative. They're supposed to represent um, any concerns that the residents of a facility might have, whether it, you know, is neglect, abuse, or something, you know, you know, maybe a little more innocent, but of concern to them. And then in cases where residents can't necessarily speak for themselves, they will represent the families as well who might have concerns. So this um, niece had spoken to the ombudsman for this facility about four days after her aunt had died. And during that conversation is when she learned that an employee at the facility had brought the virus in, and this was an employee who didn't just work at this nursing home, but they also worked at another nursing home in the county that had just had a major outbreak. And so that raised a lot of concerns for her. It seems very convenient for an organization to blame it on an individual not disclosing their prior employment. That seems extremely fishy to me. I spoke to the ombudsman, she, she gave me a name and a number of someone to speak to at the facility. The sort of standard response you get now when you call a nursing home to talk to people with direct knowledge of what may or may not have transpired is, oh, we can't talk to media, you have to go through a corporate office. That's what ended up happening in this case. I spoke to their corporate communications office and Anytime you do that, it ends up being this process of like third-hand info. You know, they call up the people who have the direct knowledge. They package that information to be media-friendly, as it were. Then you get your information that way. And it's often not these straightforward answers. They don't really directly answer your questions. It's a lot of like following up to clarify something that they might have said or to just confirm different things to try to make sense of what they're saying. And, and, and I'll be honest, it's the same process with the state. So reaching out to the State Department of Health, I had some questions and they were helpful in some ways, but in other ways, when they don't wanna answer a question, they, they will not give a direct answer and, and they'll, they'll make you keep working to, to try to clarify something. That's frustrating. The answers that you did get, you know, say from the corporate headquarters, what, what were they saying? I mean, what did they give you? The first thing I wanted to know is if they could confirm that this employee had brought the virus in. And secondly, you know, the ombudsman had given the family an interesting piece of information, which was the ombudsman said, you know, I spoke to the facility and they said, yeah, this employee from Diamond Hill, that's the, the second nursing home where they worked, this employee brought it in, but she never disclosed that she worked at Diamond Hill. You know, so I asked the spokesperson for the facility, you know, is this true? And they don't directly respond, but what they will say is, well, you know, the employee in question did also work at Diamond Hill. We can't limit someone's earning potential. This was a, a per diem employee. So this is not a, a full-time staff member. It's somebody who you know, works hours as needed. So they don't directly confirm like, yes, she didn't disclose this or yes, she's the person who brought it in, but they also didn't deny it. 
the other thing that they had raised was that there was a delay with this employee's test results. Mm -hmm. And this has been a, a huge issue. And in fact, I think it's why we're still seeing outbreaks at nursing homes. So this employee was tested on July 18th and the results didn't come back for six days. And when they came back six days later, it showed that they had been positive. Of course, they, they weren't feeling any symptoms. And when you don't feel any symptoms, you're allowed to keep working. But that six-day delay meant that that was six days that that employee had been working directly with residents. In particular, they worked on the unit where this family's loved one lived. As I sort of investigated this further and talked to you know various people, I've sort of learned at this point that these are two of the major issues going on right now with these continued nursing home outbreaks. And one is one is this first issue of you know, employees who work at multiple nursing homes and are potentially bringing the virus from one home to another. And then the other issue is the testing turnaround. As you mentioned previously, you know, you've been covering nursing homes since, I mean, well, you always cover nursing homes, but <laughs> you're covering, yeah. you know, particularly covering nursing homes since the COVID pandemic kind of took hold of the region. This is not the first time you've encountered either of those those issues. So can you kind of tell me a little bit more about what you've found out and, and kind of what you're pursuing along those lines? Um, in Rensselaer County in particular, they've had a couple major nursing home outbreaks. And I spoke with the county's um, director of operations who has been giving me sort of daily updates on cases throughout the county, not just at nursing homes. And, and he told me that, you know, he's actually spoken to a lot of family members who have loved ones in these nursing homes with the outbreaks. And he hears a lot of similar things. And they have also spoken directly with the nursing homes. And he said, you know, this is a trend that they have been seeing. Another home in the county, uh, it's called Riverside, they also had an issue where an employee who worked multiple jobs appeared to have brought the virus from one site to the other that had previously not had any cases. And he said, so he's heard of that at at least two nursing homes in their county. And that's a concern for a couple reasons. I mean, you're never going to go into a nursing home where these employees stay on site 24-7 and sort of work in a bubble. They do, you know, they go home to their families. But the hope, at least from a public health perspective, is that when you have these people working around vulnerable populations like the elderly and people with multiple underlying conditions, the hope is that those people are minimizing their exposure to others. You know, the fact that you had somebody who was working at another home with an already established outbreak is, is a big concern, I think. You know, it's also just widely been a practice that nursing homes will employ people who work these multiple jobs at other nursing homes. And it's especially common with these, these big chains. So the owner of the Troy Center where this woman died, they are this, this really big for-profit nursing home chain based in New York City. And they own, you know, like over half a dozen homes in the capital region area. Prior to the pandemic, nursing homes had been understaffed for years. The staffing was always an issue with nursing homes. They, they just don't receive a lot of pay. There's a lot of turnover. The shifts are long. There's a lot of overtime. And so when, when the staff started to get sick with COVID, the staffing was even more of an issue. They had to fill these vacancies and these gaps. So they relied on this sort of common practice that they've used for a long time, which is if you're, you're a big nursing home chain and you have a network of nursing homes, well, you can just draw on 
your employees who work at another home within your network. And so that is what this nursing home chain um, has been doing. There's also a case, you know, even if you don't have a whole network of employees from multiple sites to draw on, when you have per diem employees, that is employees who work as needed, which is going to be a common practice when there's widespread understaffing in nursing homes, you're going to need to pull people in at the last minute, that kind of thing. You really can't tell them, hey, you can only work at this facility. You know, you can't force them to only work at your one facility when they're not a full-time employee. And so it is common that per diem workers will sort of string these multiple jobs together to, to make ends meet. I mean, we're talking about certified nursing aides. They barely make a salary that rivals minimum wage. So it's sort of necessary for their livelihood. And so I do think it's notable that Centers Healthcare, which is the for-profit owner of this nursing home we've been discussing, mm-hmm. they have had quite a few homes in the capital region that have had these large outbreaks. So let's go back for a minute to the testing delays that you mentioned. What are some of the implications there in, in what you found? As we know, New York has mandated that nursing home employees be tested once a week. And the idea here is that this virus we know now can spread asymptomatically. So let's catch it before it has a chance to spread in these workers who may not even be feeling any symptoms. The problem is when the test result for those employees is taking days or even weeks to come back, it sort of renders this whole point of weekly testing moot. And there's a really good example, a really good but very unfortunate and sad example um, in the North Country. So the Centers Healthcare, which is the chain we've been talking about that owns the Troy Center, also owns another facility in the North Country called the Essex Center. They're currently battling a huge outbreak. And this outbreak began, according to the local health department up there, this outbreak began because the test results for an employee who was later found to be positive for the virus took 19 days to come back. That's 19 days of the virus spreading unchecked to those vulnerable residents. And I was just looking at the local media reports up there. And I think as of yesterday, they had 98 residents and staff at the facility who have now tested positive. Eight residents have died. So it has very real life or death consequences. And, you know, I did get an email yesterday from the spokesperson for the this home who said, you know, they've just decided now to bring their staff testing in-house to be doing this testing themselves because the turnaround that they were seeing at these outside labs that they had relied on was just taking too long. And, and I think they recognized it was having these deadly consequences. It's a bit of a catch-22 because on the one hand, nursing homes have this mandate that they have to test employees once a week. And that's I forget the exact number, but that's a huge number of people who have to be tested on a weekly basis. And we already have, you know, these national labs that are experiencing backlogs because of the spikes in other parts of the country. So there is a concerted effort in recent weeks by CMS, the agency that oversees nursing homes, to ship these rapid testing machines out to nursing homes uh, throughout the country. And actually, the Albany County Nursing Home just got one of these machines uh, a couple weeks ago, I believe. And they were extremely excited to get that because they were getting results back. You know, it was taking like a week in some cases to get results back for them. And now with this machine, they're able to get them back. I think they said it was, it could be like in 15 minutes, they could get results back. So that, that clearly has a huge 
implication for, for screening and catching this virus before it gets out of control. You know, aside from covering nursing homes, you are the health reporter of the Times Union, so you've bore the brunt, I should say. You've done some excellent reporting in the last, you know, seven or eight months. You kind of bore the brunt of the coronavirus coverage. So can you kind of just give us an update on, you know, where we are now and maybe where we've come from? Where we are now, I think we are in a relatively good but highly tentative place right now. So you know, the capital region experienced its peak of cases in um, early spring. So like April and May, we we had experienced the bulk of our cases and it has declined steadily since then. There was there was a spike in July after um, the 4th of July. There was this big party in Albany that ended up having a lot of cases. And I think people were just getting used to the reopening and going out and venturing out and having parties. So there was a spike in July, but it leveled off and we're still in that leveling off place. However, we are at a precarious sort of moment of um, people going back to school, college students going out to party, uh, flu season is coming up. There's also the concern about a second wave of COVID as the weather gets colder. And so health officials are, are definitely paying close attention to cases right now. There, you know, There's no sort of immediate signs that you know, another spike is occurring right now. I, I think cases have been ticking up a little bit, but health officials have said, you know, we don't know yet if this is a trend, but they're definitely going to be watching it. Sure. And I know that you're going to be watching it and you'll have lots more to talk about for good or for bad. So <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to join me and tell me about your story. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. Enjoy those first school days.